This podcast is sponsored by Trustmakers, providing media relations and communications training in Canada and internationally for over 20 years. We help scientists, experts, and leaders to build trust and support through clear, honest, and authentic communication. Find out more at trustmakers.ca. This episode is also brought to you in partnership with the Invasive Species Centre. The centre works to increase the prevention and management of invasive species in Canada. Find out more at invasivespeciescenter.ca. Now in theatres and across Canada. The climate of planet Earth is changing rapidly, and aliens are coming. Alien creatures and plants are on the move. They're massing at the border as the temperature rises. They're moving northward as the world teeters on the edge of climate disaster. They're taking over, driving out the Earthlings. But there is a hero fighting against the alien invasion, a person of action who is part of the counter-invasion forces coming together in Canada to deal with these alien invaders. From 21st Century Pictures, Invasion of the Alien Species, starring you as the hero, now playing everywhere, even in your own backyard. day, we make many decisions about our health, safety, and the environment. From the food we eat and staying cyber safe, to dealing with public health emergencies and dealing with climate change. Each month, the Own the Science podcast will reveal how often little-known public sector science has a profound impact on Canadians' day-to-day life. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Own the Science. I'm your host, John Nelson McKay. And I'm your host, Trel Kaloje, filling in for Andrea Morantz. In this episode of Own the Science, we're continuing our series looking at an invasion Canada is actively fighting. The invasive species invasion. These creatures are coming at the country through every channel they can find. Of course, water is one way, as we discussed last episode. But we're a vast country with a lot of land. From forests, prairies, and grasslands to mountains and arctic tundra. No corner of this country is safe from invasive species. These species are good at what they do. Stealthy and sneaky, they are often hiding in plain sight or waiting to be activated by a warming climate. We'll examine a case of how quick-thinking individuals stopped an insect invasion in Vaughan, Ontario, and at Pearson Airport. But first, let's look at the invasion by land. How do these species arrive and expand their reach right across the country? Are there species we need to push the panic button on? And what creatures are lying in wait that could be the next invasion if conditions are right? Trail, you spoke to some researchers who are trying to find the answer to those and many other questions. What did you find out? I talked to some great people at the Invasive Species Centre in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Their job every day is to focus on what invasive species are here or knocking on our door 
and what we can do to fight back and stop or control an invasion. One of the important things they try to do is get invasive species top of mind. It can be hard for people to see the effects of these species until there's a full-blown invasion and you've lost every ash tree on your neighborhood street to the emerald ash borer. What makes invasive species so concerning is that they can blend in and start taking over quickly. They adapt and they're often small. So I want to take a step back in time here. I asked Colin Casson, the policy manager with the Invasive Species Center, when invasive species first arrived in Canada. Many of our current invasive species have come over in the last 200 years or so. Some of the earlier ones would come in around early 18. Things like invasive earthworms come to mind as something that was thought to come over on soil or ship ballast. 200 years ago, we were using soil to weigh down ships for transatlantic journeys, as opposed to now, which is water is, is more the preferred ballast of choice. So things like earthworms coming over as hitchhikers, if you will, within contaminated soil was one of our, our more early invasive species. We did have other earthworms that were present in North America and within Canada, but glaciation really knocked them down to the Central Americas as of years ago. I heard Colin mention earthworms there. That kind of piqued my interest a little bit. These are actually an invasive species? I'm totally with you, John. I had no idea that earthworms were invaders. Talk about stealthy, right? They're living and moving underground. You heard Colin say that the last ice age wiped out our native earthworms here a long time ago. Now these new earthworms have set up shop across Canada. Earthworms are a really interesting example of an invasive species. I think partially because they're species or a group of species that we're also very familiar with. Whether it's, you know, taking our hands through garden soil or planting a tomato plant when we're, we're a little bit younger, perhaps, or just working in the, in the front garden planting some flowers in the spring. Earthworms in all Canadian provinces and territories tend to be a, a bit of a usual sight to the gardeners. And kind of interesting, in many parts of Canada, most earthworms that we see are actually invasive. So in Ontario, for instance, 18 of our 20 species of earthworms, species that we're really accustomed to seeing, basically the, the most common earthworms that people will come across, are all actually invasive. The earthworms we're familiar with on a sidewalk after a rainy evening, all invasive. Those only two other species that are native are exclusively found in wetlands and stream, bed, stream beds, and really uncommon. So kind of interesting that most earthworms, almost all earthworms that we're usually familiar with in Ontario and all across Canada are invasive. We normally think of earthworms as being good though, especially for our gardens. Is it a problem that these new species of earthworms are found all over the country and expanding their reach? That was my first thought too. We typically hear about how good earthworms are for your soil. Colin explained that in those habitats we've created, your backyard garden or your new flower bed, yes, earthworms, invasive or not, can be good. But in the natural environments, like our forests, it's a different story. They are tiny seed predators. So one of the really interesting studies that I had a chance to participate in previously was figuring out what is the impact of earthworms on soil seed banks. So soil seed banks are what happened when, obviously, when a tree has a really good seed production year, Sometimes some of those seeds will germinate right away. Sometimes they'll germinate the following year. Sometimes they might hang out under the soil, not germinated for a while, and wait for the right opportunity. Sometimes that can be tens of years. And earthworms, 
are, are, are pretty generalist in terms of their preferences, and so they'll munch away on many seeds. And what they do in terms of seed impacts is destroy those seeds, they'll consume them, they'll grind them up in their gut, and basically just excrete them out as non-viable seeds or destroyed seeds. And the interesting thing is they don't impact all seeds equally. They have preferences, just like you or me in terms of what we're going to have for dinner. Uh, we might have certain preferences over others, and that might re be reflective of what's remaining in the refrigerator tomorrow. What didn't we eat today? And what's available for dinner tomorrow? So earthworms kind of have that same function, is that they go after some species of trees or some species of, of understory plant seeds, and they leave others. And that actually has an impact on what the forest is going to look like five years from now, ten years from now, even fifty years from now, because they like certain seeds over others. And sometimes their preferences can even favor towards chewing up native seeds and making those unavailable, and perhaps leaving some less enticing or ecologically less useful seeds, maybe non-native seeds or, or invasive trees or shrubs as well. So we don't have ships from Europe arriving with earthworm hitchhikers like in the 1800s. So how are they getting around now? Well, like so many of our invasive species in Canada, us humans are giving them a helping hand. One of the main ways earthworms are getting to new places and establishing a colony is through live bait. Earthworms are a common bait choice for anglers right across the country. So you have a couple worms left over in your box after you're done fishing for the day. You tip them into the water or dump them beside your boat or near the boat launch and carry on your way. But Colin says don't dump your bait. Earthworms can actually survive weeks underwater and like something from a horror movie, crawl out of the water and create a new home wherever they end up. Even worse if you dump them on dirt to begin with. These creatures are so hard to control and basically impossible to eliminate once they do arrive somewhere. So prevention is key. Don't help the earthworms get around. Don't dump bait. Make sure no earthworms are catching a ride on a tree you're transplanting somewhere. That kind of thing. So earthworms are a prime example of a stealthy species moving right under our noses. Are there other sneaky ways that invasive species are getting around? Yes. When we're talking about invasive insects, especially when they're in the early stages of expanding their reach, they may be coming a few at a time. Or they're so small, maybe it's their eggs traveling, not even the actual insect. The spongy moth is a good example of this. They are most destructive as caterpillars, stripping leaves off of trees and weakening trees to the point that they can die. Mackenzie DeGasparo is the Program Development Coordinator at the Invasive Species Centre. She also runs the Forest Invasives Program. She said the spongy moth can move in really unconventional ways. So Ontario is essentially the leading edge for this species, and it's really starting to move westward. It's not really established yet in any of the prairie provinces or more western Canada. So they are finding that actually through COVID, when we saw an increase in transportation kind of from east to west, people with RVs, people traveling, people moving, they saw an increase in spongy moth detections in Western Canada because of this. So RVs and cross-country travel are definitely really, really big pathways for this, the spread of this species. And that's because their egg masses are very cryptic. So they'll lay their eggs pretty well on anything that is flat, a hard surface. Oftentimes this will include wheel wells of vehicles, trailers, 
any outdoor furniture that you may have that you've left outside, camping gear. So then if you're bringing those things on a trip, you may not realize, you might think there's just kind of a, a piece of dirt or something on it, but lo and behold, it's a spongy moth egg mass. So then through just your normal travel unknowingly, you can spread these spongy moth egg masses with you. The spongy moth originally arrived in North America with some help. They were brought over from Europe on purpose, actually. It was part of an experiment in the late 1860s to see if the spongy moth and the silkworm could crossbreed and make a hardier silkworm. It was with the hopes of establishing a silk industry in the United States. The experiment failed, though, and when some of the caterpillars got away, they found a whole new area to explore. Now they are all over the northeastern U.S. and eastern Canada. So these insects can spread with our help, but they are also what Mackenzie calls an outbreak species. This means their population can fluctuate year to year. 2021 was an especially bad year with record defoliation in Ontario. But what's interesting is there's a population control built right into this species. When there's a large outbreak of caterpillars, a virus called NPV becomes so prevalent that it basically kills off these caterpillars for the next year. This meant a 97% decrease in defoliation in 2022. So the area impacted by spongy moth in Ontario went from roughly the size of a small country to the size of a small city in just a year. These sneaky moths are here and somewhat controlling themselves, but still not good to have around. Are there any insects that the Invasive Species Center has an eye on that maybe aren't here yet, but could be waiting at the border? Yes, the Invasive Species Center is watching and waiting for the spotted lanternfly to cross the border from the States. These bugs are really distinct looking, with polka dot spots when they're in their kind of beetle form, as well as once they turn into a moth. But their eggs really blend in, and that's one of the main concerns. These little guys don't need a passport. Their eggs are likely going to hitch a ride and cross the border. Emily Posterero is a program development coordinator at the Invasive Species Center. She has her eye on this species. I guess you can call it kind of a stealthy species because it can so easily, its spread can so easily be facilitated by human travel. If you've ever been able to, to take a look at its egg masses, through pictures. It's not here in Canada yet, but if you've ever seen pictures of its egg masses, they kind of look like a, a smear of mud or maybe a bit of lichen on a tree or, or another hard surface outside. And so unless you knew what you were looking at, it might not appear to you as, as insect eggs, much less the eggs of a really destructive invasive insect. And it can lay its eggs really on anything. And so through you know, transport on a vehicle or cargo or contaminated nursery stock, it can very easily get here. And we've already seen it spread a fair bit. As far as we know, it's been in North America since 2014. It was first detected in Pennsylvania, and now it's in 14 different U.S. states. And that's, you know, despite quarantine efforts in Pennsylvania to control the spread. So it is it is quite difficult to to control, and it's it's had a lot of help from humans to get places. It doesn't move that far on its own, but through human transport, it can definitely move far. So Emily says that these bugs are close by. What's at risk here if they do make it across the border and establish a population in Canada? 
These insects are so close. There's a group of them that have been recently found in Buffalo, New York, near an active rail line. Buffalo is very close to the Ontario border. There are three border crossings from the U.S. to Canada in the Niagara Falls area, and all are within a 45-kilometer distance of Buffalo. And the bad news, especially if you're a wine lover, is the spotted lanternfly loves grapes. While they can establish a population on various plants and trees, grapevines are their favorite. This is especially a concern for Ontario with a $3 billion wine and grape industry. The insect also likes other fruits. And if you're a craft beer drinker, you'll be concerned. These bugs like hops. So they have good taste, but we really don't want them here. What should we do if we see one of these bugs just immediately step on it? Well, it depends on where you are. There's actually an interesting campaign in the States I'll let Mackenzie talk about here. It's absolutely a squish-on-site insect. They actually have large campaigns in the States where they tell you to squish and kill these insects if you see them. There's like an app that they have, I think it's called Squash, where you can track how many spotted lanternflies you've squashed. There are general recommendations if you see a spotted lanternfly is first take a picture of it so you can report it because if you don't report these species then there's no way that the correct agencies will be able to become aware of it and take action as necessary. This is one of those species that experts need our help with. It's in the early stages of an invasion and there's no population in Canada yet. So this is our chance to help in the fight before it gets to a point that we can't control it. In Canada, typically you'll want to report a sighting of a spotted lanternfly to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. Or you can upload your photo and file a report on the invasive species tracking website, EdMaps. So that's a species on the brink of arriving in Canada. There are species here that maybe aren't causing huge problems yet, the so-called sleeper species that have the potential to be invasive but need some help from perhaps a changing climate? Absolutely. There are species in Canada already that a changing climate could awaken. Maybe these species aren't causing problems right now or are staying within a certain range. But Emily says a warming climate could change all that. There's other ways that climate creates favorable conditions for invasive species to arrive and to spread. So a few different examples, you know, certain trade routes, shipping routes and pathways will probably open up, uh, especially in the far north with, you know, melting sea ice. And so that will provide a newer and and faster route for uh, invasive species to arrive and then potentially establish in the Arctic region. So that's one Another way is that, you know, with climate change, we're seeing kind of more frequent disturbances. So you can think of these as, you know, forest fires, floods, droughts, you know, different weather events that, of course, stress native species. They can create opportunities both for invasive species to move and also to establish, you know, one characteristic of of certain invasive species that helps them to be so invasive is that they can establish in what we call, you know, disturbed areas. And so climate change just, you know, enables that a little bit more. One of the species that could benefit from a warming climate is the Cyrex wood wasp. They are not good for pine trees, 
and experts are seeing their populations expand in Ontario and Quebec. As well, the mountain pine beetle is native to BC, but it's starting to behave invasively and spread beyond its normal range. Cold winters have typically kept that insect at bay, but if winters aren't as cold, the beetle could increase its population and range. Invasive species on land have the potential to do much damage and transform the way our country looks. Whether it is earthworms changing the landscape from the ground up, or invasive insects targeting trees from the top down. It's true. These invasive species have the ability to touch so many different aspects of our lives. Economically, controlling these species is expensive once they're here. And personally, think about walking down your street or hiking in a forest. That landscape could and is changing because of invasive species. Not to mention the risks to enjoying fresh fruit or local Niagara wine. The Invasive Species Center is hoping to mobilize all of us. It's not just the scientists at the forefront of this. It's all of us that can keep an eye out for a bug we don't recognize or how the trees in our backyard are doing. The experts tell us that even though we've helped invasive species get here and spread, we're part of the solution too. Thanks, Trill. We'll look at how invasive species have had a helping hand from human accomplices in our next episode. Thanks, John. It is 1992 in Burnaby, British Columbia. It is an important year in the life of this community. It is the 100th anniversary of its incorporation in 1882. In fact, 1992 is also the year Burnaby officially becomes a city. But on a sunny, pleasant day in mid-July, an official peered into a shipping container that had just arrived from China. Staring back from within the wood packaging material were hundreds of alien creatures, each with long black and white antennae and six bluish-white legs. It was the first recorded attempt by the Asian long-horned beetle to invade Canada. While it is only a couple of centimeters long, the invader has the potential to do billions of dollars in damage. The officials sprang into action and the container and the wood were fumigated. All of the invaders were exterminated. The first attempted invasion of these insidious insects had been prevented, but others would follow. Over a decade later, and over 400,000 kilometers away, the biggest invasion was yet to come. In 2003, a private citizen reported seeing an Asian longhorn beetle in Vaughan, just north of the city of Toronto. Once again, the invaders arrived in infested wood crates, pallets, and packaging material from outside Canada. This time, they would not go down without a fight. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency worked with other parts of the federal government, the provincial government, local governments, conservation authorities, and community groups. 
A proactive communications campaign kept the public informed. They also established a scientific committee to ensure decision-making was based on science, such as deciding on surveillance, tree removal, and even the size of the wood chips from those trees to prevent the spread of the beetle. After more than 25,000 trees were cut down to control the infestation the Alliance of Governments and other groups had thought they had won, they hadn't seen any beetles for five years. But there was a satellite group that had taken hold just a few kilometers away. Once again, a member of the public discovered their presence. The next phase of the campaign began. In 2020, after 17 years of counter-invasion actions, victory was declared. The invaders had been eradicated. But this insidious beetle remains a threat. It can hide in wood packaging material. It can burrow into campfire wood and be transported great distances by unwitting human accomplices. If they are allowed in, they have the potential to wreak havoc and create billions of dollars of damage to the Canadian forestry, maple syrup, tourism, and recreation sectors. Humans won the long-fought battle of Little Longhorn in Ontario from 2003 to 2000, but rest assured, the Asian longhorned beetle has not given up. This podcast is sponsored by Trustmakers.ca, helping scientists, experts, and leaders to build trust and support through authentic communication. To find out more about this podcast and the subjects discussed, visit ownthescience.ca. You can subscribe to Own the Science anywhere you listen to podcasts. To reach us on social media, follow us on Twitter at ownthescience. Hosting and research, Trell Kologe. Post-production and voiceover, Julie Sommerfeld. Coordination and scheduling, Brenda Bookbinder. Original music by Aidan Gray. Created, written, and hosted by John Nelson McKay. Own the Science is produced by Trustmakers out of the Center 42 studios in Ottawa. Find out more at trustmakers.ca.